0: We sometimes forget that our everyday lives are fraught with danger. Even simple things like cutting up vegetables could potentially end in tragedy. If we think about it, everything we do is conceivably dangerous, and in fact, there is nothing scarier than real life. In this video, we'll look at some nightmarish horror stories that actually happened. From people innocently walking home but not making it, to a man whose venture down a cave ended up being his grave. Tom and Eileen, lone again. In January 1998, husband and wife Tom and Eileen were returning from a Peace Corps mission in Fiji, heading home to Hawaii. Both were experienced divers and decided they couldn't pass up the chance of diving at the Great Barrier Reef. So on January 25th, they boarded the Outer Edge boat that took them and a group of other tourists 40 miles out to sea, where they visited three dive sites, the last being a place named Fish City, the pair were experienced divers and were comfortable going off on their own in the water. However, when they resurfaced from their dive, to their horror, their dive boat had departed without them, leaving them all alone, bobbing in the vast ocean. It is standard practice for dive excursion to do a headcount before heading back to shore, but on this occasion, something went drastically wrong. None of the vessel's crew or passengers noticed the two had not come back aboard, until two days later, when the boat owner looked in a bag that had been left behind that day by a passenger. Immediately, alarm bells started to ring when he discovered Tom's wallet. A rescue team was immediately sent out and extensive searches were made, but sadly, the couple were never seen again. Their bodies assumed to be lost at sea. Like other nightmarish experiences, Tom and Eileen's story was turned into a film called Open Water that depicted the couple meeting their end circled by sharks. But the true story is much scarier, simply because no one really knows what happened to them. Over the years, a lot of information has come out about their lives and the circumstances that led to them being abandoned. Several weeks after they were reported missing, pieces of their diving gear washed up on shore, including inflatable jackets with their names on, air tanks, and a woman's wetsuit. However, none of the items had any signs of blood or holes that would be consistent with a shark attack. What was strange was why the Lonegans had removed the jacket that would help to keep them afloat. It's theorized they may have taken them off in an attempt to swim to shore, although without the buoyancy of their jackets, they would have likely worn themselves out to the point of exhaustion. One of the most chilling things was discovered six months after they disappeared, when a dive slate was discovered by a fisherman. A dive slate is used by divers so they can communicate underwater. They are basically small boards where information and messages can be written. The dive slate found by the fishermen was dated January 26, 1998, with a time of 8 a.m. and a message that read, "'Please help us or we will die.'" The distress note appears to indicate the loner gangs were still alive, at least until the next day. Also discovered at the couple's home were diaries that both Tom and Eileen had kept, and some of the entries indicated all was not well in their lives. They wrote about hating their jobs, and eerily, Eileen felt her husband had developed a death wish. Tom's diary appeared to back this up, with an entry that read, Like a student who has finished an exam, I feel that my life is complete and I am ready to die. These revelations led to suggestions the couple were either carrying out a suicide pact or were the victims of a murder-suicide at the hands of Tom. Another strange theory emerged while police were investigating the case the captain of another boat, claimed to have visited the same dive spot the next day and may have encountered the couple. According to his story, the headcount before the vessel's return trip came out two more than the one taken when the boat left port. Apparently, the tourists on the boat were all from Italy and spoke in their native tongue. However, the captain remembers hearing a few American voices among the tourists that day. If this account is true, it could indicate the Lona Gans planned to spend the night in the ocean knowing they could join another dive boat the next day. Leading to claims, the Lona gangs faked their own death. This theory was later reinforced when more than 20 people came forward claiming to have seen the loner gangs after they supposedly disappeared. However, considering they both left their passports behind, never touched their bank accounts after the incident, and their insurance policies were never cashed in, this does seem a bit far-fetched. Some have questioned why the Loner Gans didn't swim to one of the well-lit diving platforms a few miles away or flag down a passing ship, although it's been pointed out that although these things would be easily visible from the deck of a boat, they may not have been easily seen from the surface of the water. Tom had also left his glasses on board, making it even more difficult for him to see. In addition, it's highly likely the Loner Gans were in a state of panic. They had been left completely alone, and as hours ticked by, they must have realized their boat wasn't returning for them and there was no active rescue underway. Coupled this with the heat from the sun and lack of fresh drinking water, they were likely in a bad way. No one knows what happened to the Lona gangs and it's hard to imagine being in that situation, totally alone surrounded by a shark infested ocean. It seems unlikely that they were eaten by sharks, as though half of the world's sharks live in the waters around Australia, most of them are completely harmless to humans all the evidence seems to point to the Luna Gangs becoming exhausted and drowning. Clearly mistakes were made by the boat owner, and after he was acquitted of manslaughter, a civil case was brought against him and the business closed. Stricter laws on how dive companies operate and how headcounts are taken have also been enforced. It's horrific to think they likely lived for at least 48 hours alone in the ocean. The case is sad, because unless they intentionally faked their own death, which seems unlikely, this shouldn't have happened. Ron and Dan Lafferty. Ron and Dan Lafferty were raised in a large dysfunctional family in Orem, Utah. Ron was the eldest of eight children that consisted of six boys and two girls. They were all brought up in a strict Mormon family and their father was a stern disciplinarian who sometimes took out his rage on the family. On one occasion, he beat the family dog to death with a baseball bat. As well as being a disciplinarian, he was also a conspiracy theorist who taught his children to distrust conventional medicine and the federal government. As Ron and Dan grew up, they became very close and both carried their father's extreme beliefs into adulthood. Dan, in particular, thought he was well above the law and was often in trouble for refusing to pay taxes or obey traffic laws. Both men married and continued to be active members of the church. However, eventually, Dan became disgruntled with the Mormon church when it abandoned polygamy, the practice of taking more than one wife, and he joined a splinter group called the School of the Prophets. Ron soon followed his younger brother into the movement after being excommunicated from the Mormon church in 1983. The School of the Prophets taught how to receive relations from God, and soon all six Lafferty brothers joined the movement and all of them were spending a lot of time together, railing against the Mormon church and the US government, much to the annoyance of their wives. Dan and Ron also declared to the group that they were prophets and both men started sporting an unkept appearance with long beards. Eventually, Ron's wife left him. She objected to his bizarre and twisted views and refused to practice polygamy. Ron was bereft and deeply depressed after she left and spent his days and nights writing what he believed would one day be a scripture. But his anguish at the breakup of his marriage soon turned into rage and he blamed three people, Chloe Lowe, a former Mormon Relief Society president, who had supported his wife during the divorce, Richard Stowe, the Highland Mormon stake president, who had presided over his excommunication, and Brenda Wright Lafferty, the strong-willed wife of his youngest brother, Alan. Brenda was a former beauty queen and a college graduate. She was confident and not afraid to speak up. She didn't believe Ron or Dan were prophets and she told them as much. She also objected to their fundamentalist belief in polygamy and when Alan started to be influenced by Dan and Ron's beliefs, she fought back and stopped him attending the meetings. Ron's anger towards Brenda grew in his mind. She had driven away his wife and now she was splitting up the brothers. He later claimed he had a revelation that God told him that Brandon needed to be removed, along with her infant daughter. Ron shared his revelation with the School of Prophets members on what he called the Removal Revelation List. Chloe Lowe and Richard Stowe were also on it. This is what he wrote. Thus, saint the Lord, unto my servants the prophets, It is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. For they have truly become obstacles in my path and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First thy brother's wife Brenda and her baby, then Chloe Lowe and then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession. On the afternoon of July 24th, 1984, Ron and his brother Dan set out to fulfill the revelation. Driving a battered green station wagon, they drove to Alan and Brenda's home in American Fork, Utah. Carrying with them guns and knives, the two bearded men entered the house where they beat and strangled Brenda with a vacuum cleaner cord before slashing her and baby Erica's throat with a knife. Both men were soon arrested for the crime. In court, Dan represented himself and was found guilty and sentenced to five years to life. After psychiatric evaluation, Ron was found to be fit to stand trial and was also tried and convicted in 1985. He was sentenced to death. After years of unsuccessful appealing on grounds of mental capability, Ron elected to be executed by firing squad. However, in 2019, Ron died in Salt Lake City State Prison, aged 78. Had he lived, he was due to be executed the following year His brother Dan still languishes in the maximum security wing of Utah State Prison and over the years has spoken in graphic detail about what he did to his sister-in-law and baby niece. A book called Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith was written about the brothers based on interviews Dan gave. Dan remains to this day unrepentant, still believing all organized religion is of the devil. He doesn't believe he will die in prison he believes the walls will crumble and he will emerge as the biblical prophet, a liar, announcing the second coming of Christ. The Nepropetrovsk Maniacs. This case was suggested by one of our patrons. It was committed in Ukraine by three friends who went on a three-week killing spree during which they killed over 20 innocent people. Viktor Sayenko, Igor Sopranyuk and Alexander Hansa were all born in 1988 to wealthy, influential parents and attended school together in Nepropetrovsk, Ukraine. They all suffered from various phobias, which they tried to overcome by doing strange activities, such as hanging over the railing of balconies to combat their fear of height and torturing and killing stray dogs and cats to cure a fear of blood. After leaving school, Sayenko and Hansa got jobs while Sopranyuk became an unlicensed taxi driver. To make extra money, the three teenagers started robbing taxi passengers. However, eventually Sienko and Sopranyuk lost interest in robbing and decided to move on to murders. In a three-week killing spree between June and July 2007, they randomly selected victims who happened to be out walking. After creeping up on their victims, they mercilessly bludgeoned them to death with blunt instruments such as hammers and steel bars. They often killed more than one person in a day, beating them so badly that they would be almost unrecognizable. Some of the victims were also tortured and mutilated. They then recorded and photographed their dead victims, posing with them as if they had been out hunting. They were eventually caught after a survivor, 14-year-old Vadmin Lyakov, ran to the police after his friend was murdered by the pair. Initially, Vadmin was blamed for the killing. However, it quickly became clear that he was not responsible and his sketches of the perpetrators helped to identify them. The three 19-year-olds were charged with involvement in 29 separate incidents, including 21 murders, and eight more attacks where victims survived. Soproniuk was charged with 27 of the cases, including 21 counts of capital murder, eight armed robberies, and one count of animal cruelty. Sienko was also charged with 25 instances, including 18 murders, five robberies, and one count of animal cruelty and Hansa was charged with two counts of armed robbery, as he never participated in any of the murders. Soprenyuk and Sienko were both sentenced to life imprisonment, while Hansa was sentenced to nine years. No motive has ever been established, although local media reported the killers had a plan to get rich from showing the murders on the internet. In April 2019, it was reported that Alexander Hansa had been released from prison after serving nine years, and is now married and living with his wife and two children somewhere in Ukraine. The devastating story of John Edward Jones. At age 26, John Edward Jones was in the prime of his life. He was married, he had a one-year-old daughter, and was attending medical school in Virginia. In November 2009, John had traveled back to his hometown in Utah to spend with his friends and family. John and his brother Josh had been keen cavers as kids, along with nine other friends and family members, and decided to explore Nutty Putty Cave, a notoriously tricky hydrothermal cave formation located just west of Utah Lake. The group set off on the evening of November the 24th. About an hour into the expedition, John decided to find the Nutty Putty Cave formation known as the Birth Canal, a very tight passage that experienced Splunkers needed to carefully crawl through. It had been years since John had been in a cave and at six feet tall and 200 pounds, he wasn't the little kid who used to easily crawl into caves with his father. Despite this, John pushed on, entering the narrow opening head first, carefully shuffling along using his hips, stomach and fingers. However, it soon became apparent he was stuck He had squeezed in so tightly, he had no room to turn around and no room to back out. He tried to push on, but just made things worse. He was stuck in a space that was barely 10 inches across and 18 inches high. Josh was the first to find John and tried to pull his brother out by grabbing his legs. However, this made things worse as John slid down into the passage even further and his arms were now pinned underneath his chest and he couldn't move at all. All the brothers who were devout Mormons could do at this point was pray. Josh called for help but because John was trapped 400 feet into the cave and 100 feet below the surface, getting rescuers equipment and supplies down that far took over an hour. The first rescuer to reach John was a woman named Susie Motola, who arrived just after midnight on November 25th. By this time, John had been stuck for three and a half hours. All Susie could see was a pair of navy and black running shoes, Time was running out for John. The downward angle at which he was trapped was putting huge stress on his body and his blood was struggling to pump around and he was having some difficulty breathing. At one point, rescuers brought a two-way cable radio into the cave and managed to lower it to John so he could speak with his wife. They were both understandably upset but able to comfort each other. Over the next 24 hours, more than 100 rescue workers tried to free John but after everything failed to budge him, they decided to use a system of pulleys and ropes. They tied John to a rope connected to a series of pulleys. When everything was in place, they pulled as hard as they could, working in an eight-man tandem. John was at times in great pain, but slowly but surely he started to move, until he was finally high enough to make eye contact with one of the rescuers. They even managed a short conversation. John was almost out. Then suddenly, without warning... One of the pulleys failed after coming loose from its anchor point in the cave wall. The entire team fell backwards as the rope suddenly went loose. Once the dust had settled, the rescuers realized John had slid right down the crevice again, this time seemingly even deeper than before. There was now no hope of rescue, and John's heart could take no more after hours of strain due to his downward position. Sadly, John was pronounced dead of cardiac arrest shortly before midnight on the evening of November 25th, 2009. Rescuers had heroically spent 27 hours trying to save him. His family thanked them for their help, even despite the tragic news. After John's death, officials sealed off Nutty Putty Cave for good. They never recovered his body, which remains inside to this day. John's family had a plaque put on the entrance of the cave in his memory and Nutty Putty Cave now serves as a national memorial and gravesite to John Edward Jones. In 2016, filmmaker Isaac Halasima produced and directed a full-length feature film about the life and failed rescue of John Jones called The Last Descent. It gives an accurate and terrifying insight into the ordeal John suffered. Anatoly Moskvin. Anatoly Moskvin was a smart guy. He spoke 13 languages, traveled extensively, and was a published scholar and college lecturer. He also had a dubious reputation as being an expert on cemeteries, as he knew everything there was to know about the cemeteries in his city, Nizhny Novgorod, Russia. Moskvin claimed that between 2005 and 2007, he visited 752 cemeteries and dialed into the histories of those buried there. He attributed his obsession with the macabre to a 1979 incident when he was 13 and a group of men in black suits stopped him on the way home from school. They were en route to the funeral of 11-year-old Natasha Petrova and allegedly dragged young Moskin to her coffin where they forced him to kiss the girl's corpse. Moskin even claimed he spent one night sleeping in a coffin ahead of a deceased person's funeral to add to his observations. However, it seems at one point, this obsession with death spilled over. In 2009, locals began to discover the graves of their loved ones desecrated or completely dug up. Initially, authorities thought it was done by some extremist organizations, so they increased police units in the affected areas. But after nearly two years, they found nothing, and graves continued to be desecrated. They then got a break following a terrorist attack at a Moscow airport in 2011 Shortly afterwards, Muslim graves in the area started being vandalized. Someone was painting over the pictures of dead Muslims. Further investigations led them to Moskvin, who was caught red-handed at the graves. Police later searched his home, a small apartment he shared with his parents, and what they found was shocking. The apartment was full of life-sized doll-like figures. The figures resembled antique dolls. They were dressed in fine clothing, and some wore knee high boots and had makeup on their cloth covered faces. Except these were not dolls, they were mummified corpses of human girls. Take a look at this footage, but be warned, it is disturbing. Inside the chests of many of the dolls, Moskvin had weirdly embedded music boxes, so when he lifted them up, they played music. Investigators also found photographs and plaques taken from gravestones, as well as doll-making manuals and maps of local cemeteries. There were also personal belongings and clothing inside some of the mummies, and one had a piece of her own gravestone with her name scrawled on it inside her body. Another one contained a hospital tag with the date and the cause of her death, and a dried human heart was found inside a third body. Moskvin later admitted that he would stuff the decaying corpses with rags and wrap their hands in nylon tights and draw faces on them. He would also insert buttons or fake eyes into the girls' eye sockets so that they could watch cartoons with him. He told police that he dug up graves of girls because he was lonely and wanted children of his own. After taking them home, he used a simple solution of salt and baking soda To preserve the corpses. He treated them as if they were his daughters by singing to them and celebrating their birthdays. Moskvin also said he was waiting for science to find a way to bring the girls back to life. He always denied any sexual attraction to the dolls. In all, authorities discovered 29 life-sized dolls in his apartment. They ranged in age from 3 to 25, and one corpse had been kept for nearly nine years. Remarkably, his parents claimed to know nothing of the true origin of the dolls living in their home, believing it was just a hobby of their sons. Moskvin was charged with a dozen crimes, all of which dealt with the desecration of graves. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and sentenced to time in a psychiatric hospital. Chillingly, Moskvin allegedly told authorities not to bother reburying the girls too deeply, as he will simply unbury them when he is released. So that's five truly horrific real-life horror stories. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you in the next video.